Hello, and welcome back to this episode of the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have the Hells Angel of Management Consultant <laughs> Times, Jeff Birch, as my guest. Jeff, could you give a quick two minute intro into who you are and how you got to where you are? Well, I know this distresses you, but I am a business guru and I go around the world guruing, despite. <laughs> And I speak at conferences and I write books and I do a bit of telly. And that's kind of me. Excellent. Okay. Jeff and I have a philosophical difference around the whole idea of sales gurus. Because <laughs> in my experience, honestly, most of them are shit. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sure Jeff isn't. And do you want I'm not to- arguing with you yet. I'm not <laughs> arguing with you yet. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what are the questions that CEOs should be asking you, but they're not? When we pay you, Jeff, to speak to our people, will our company be doing better the day after? That's never what they ask. (laughs) Okay. And there must be a reason why they're not asking that question. Well, because they just, I can picture the scene. Higgins? Yes, master. We're having this this conference thing. We're having the the, uh, finance directors doing an hour and a half. He'll be bloody boring. Then we're doing some rhythmic drumming, and then all all the poor bastards have to make a step ladder out of newspaper. How are you going to round the whole thing off? Well, master, I thought we'd have a a keynote speaker. Ah, yes, jolly good. Do you know anybody? Yes, master. This Jeff Birch is quite quite amusing. Good, good. Well, yes. And so I'm confronted with a room with a thousand people. Their tongues have been lacerated from sucking Fox's glacier mints. <laughs> their, their piles are killing them. The room is too hot. And I've got 50 minutes to avoid a lynch mob, which is kind of how it works. Excellent. That brings us to the question of motivational speakers. <laughs> what the fuck is all that about? Well, I love this idea of motivational speaking. There's this thing. If you can imagine a bar chart, right? There's a bar chart. And the bottom of it is the line that says crap, right? And the top of that line says the best a man can do, like like a beer advert, right? (laughs) And if you draw a line somewhere halfway up that chart, that is the amount of effort the average employee puts in to avoid getting fired. So, you know, most people... Just do enough to avoid getting fired. The difference between the very best and that line is the motivational gap. So in other words, the top of it is the amount of effort an employee would put into organizing his daughter's wedding, his kid's football team, planning a holiday. He'll put (laughs) maximum effort into that. But he will only get half of that effort if you pay him a wage. Right. Now, can that gap be bridged by a motivational speaker? Yes, it can. But that lasts for about four minutes. You see, so you come in, they all stand on their chairs and punch the air and shout, I believe, and you can soar with the eagles. And then the next day, they all spring around punching the air and soaring with the eagles. And by the following weekend, their depression is back and I've got to come and do it all over again. Are you familiar with the website despair.com? No, it sounds right up my street. No, it's right up your street. It's magnificent. It's my third favorite website. And despair.com is the antithesis of those absolutely wanky posters. Uh, <laughs> Eagles there to soar, it's lonely on the last mile. <laughs> so, 
my favorite one, unfortunately, they discontinued it a while back. And it was a picture of a chain snapping and yeah. it said dysfunction. Have yeah. you ever considered in all of your dissatisfying relationships yeah. the one constant is you? <laughs> my favorite of those, it says this shoot, a cartoon of an enormous pile of shit, vast. Okay. And right in the top of it, right in the top of it is a little poster, a little sign, post signpost, and it says the heap. There's an arrow at the bottom pointing to it going, you are here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I might have that made up as a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> very good. I do not see myself as, a, well, you can imagine, I'm not a motivational speaker. I, I think that if you look at the hour that I've got, which is 50 minutes, really, that you can actually impart stuff that makes people do their job better in a way that they enjoy doing, if you see what I mean. It's, it's very difficult. I, I would have said I'm a bit of a Marmite thing. You know, I, I haven't triumphed over, over adversity. I haven't sailed around the world in a bin bag or dug my way out of a shallow grave using my dentures. <laughs> so, uh, you know, which is usually the stuff that's required for this. I know about business and I can turn it into funny stories. So this is really interesting because I think storytelling and narrative is a skill that is in very short supply. And increasingly, what we're seeing in management, particularly in sales, is an over-reliance on technology as the skills and art of management have disappeared since tech has become so central to everything every business does. What do we have to do to stem that tide and reverse it? Because we're in the third generation of managers who have no idea what the basics of selling are and who spend next to zero time coaching and developing their people on an ongoing basis. What needs to happen and what do leaders have to do to shift that tide back so we get back doing the basics well consistently? I think they have to suffer the pain of the results of not doing it. I mean, look at the high street. I started off, I'm not just sales training. I, I do management and bits and pieces. But I started off sales training in the most basic way. My first really good client was ladies boutiques, right? In the days when it was called ladies, ladies wear. But we had this thing of a, of a woman, she's trying to buy an outfit for her daughter's wedding. She's coming from the rain. Her Mac is soaked. Her kid is dripping in pee because he's wet himself and he's shrieking. And you've got to create this picture of the loveliest woman at a wedding. And you, you introduce the accessories. You create the picture. You talk her through. You get her to stand in front of the mirror. Just slip the shoe. Oh, I don't want shoes, lovey. I know you don't want the shoes, but you just, you know, she's got rubber galoshes on. You know, slip these shoes. You know, not only does she leave having spent 20 times as much as she came in for, but she leaves delighted, dying to try all this stuff on. And then uh, you wonder what you walk into somewhere. I walked into a major high street fashion branch with the Obersturmbahnfuhrer, my missus, <laughs> and ladies' jumpers or women's jumpers. You know, we walked back out again because I saw the price tickets. So like 260 quid each. 
the one member of staff in there didn't get off the phone the whole time we were in there. Well, I went into a, a Mercedes dealership. I'll say it's a Mercedes dealership as well, because again, the boss decided she wanted a new car, right? Wanted a new car. Now, you're a sales trainer, and I'm sure you spend a lot of time saying to any car salesman, never use jargon, all the whole kind of stuff that you shouldn't do. So we went in there. It was a misty Sunday afternoon. They shut at four. It was about half past two. So they're waiting to go home. I mean, it's an hour and a half before they go home, but they're waiting to go home. We're met by a greeter. Hello, sir. Hello, madam. You know, what do you mean? GLC, GLA. I'll just see if I can find one of our team. Of course, they couldn't. They'd all buggered off in the back room. And you could see through a window an argument going on about who was going to be copped to cop for us. And out came this slightly disheveled, slightly sweaty, grumpy bloke. Well, we're looking for GLA, GLC. Don't bother with GLA. Horrible car. I <laughs> promise. He said horrible car. Not even a proper Mercedes. Driver C-Class, me. Oh. Have you got a GLC? I don't know if we've even got one on the pitch. The pitch? Mm -hmm. Right? Now, oh, perhaps he saw us as time wasters. Really? An old, older, a mature couple arrive in a 16-plate luxury German car. 16-plate? That's three years old. Come on. Yeah, yeah, ready for a change. You know, and he finally said, oh, there's one. We walked out into the mist and he bleeped a key which he'd got a handful of keys he said this is the old model and i said have you got a new model i said isn't that one he said you can't touch that's customer's car he goes anyway there it is and he walked back in again that was it and i thought if i own does is there no boss if you make your poor unfortunate staff work at a time that is they don't want to work Sunday afternoon. Either don't open then or come in and see what they're up to. Send your missus in with a hidden camera and see what they're up to. I don't swear in my presentations because it's it can cause problems. But I'm going to swear now because this is important for this story. I was secret shopping for a major, major bulk car manufacturer who were giving away a really nice, really nice watch for anybody who took a test drive, right? And I am speaking at their conference, 2,000 salesmen. And the deal was that I go in with a hidden camera, a secret shot, and then I show the film before I did my presentation again. <laughs> so I walk it. So they're, they're all sitting there. We did it at Silverstone. There's a room full of salesmen. And the video goes, oh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff Birch, the world's finest, whatever it is. Oh, can't just play this video. And the video is exactly this. You know, first of all, one head dropped a bit lower because obviously they recognize which dealership I'd walk in. <laughs> and I quote, have you actually come for the test drive or do you just want the free watch? Oh, I just have the free watch. Here you are. Now, fuck off. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you know you and i for different reasons have different techniques training high level dealing with objections so it's not even getting that far 
<laughs> when was the last time anybody tried to sell you anything? In my experience, what they have a tendency to do is pitch at you, and there is no diagnosis. As Zig Ziglar said, and this is a medical maxim, prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. <laughs> I see sales malpractice happening oh. all the time, virtually everywhere. You see it in IT, you see it in hospitality, you see it in retail. It's just rife because salespeople think that their job is to sell. People yeah. hate to be sold. They love to buy. Yeah. And people want to be understood. What they're looking for is someone to actually pay attention. And my friend Ron Voperais came up with a lovely observation, which is attention is a currency. You pay attention. But most salespeople don't. What they're thinking about is their next question. It's how they can prove that they're the smartest person in the room or yeah. gush with expertise. But service seems to be dead. And I remember I was speaking to Stephen Covey years back at a talk that he was giving. And I asked a very banal question, which I can't remember even what it was. But his response was, the greatest among us serve the most. And that's what I'd like to come to now, which is service. Why the hell has service gone to hell in a handbucket? Because it, here's my absolute bet noir, and that is surveys. And not, not only surveys, but the net promoter score thing, that NPS. It drives me nuts, that. I had a, a series of jobs for some chicken and chip restaurants, you know, like pub-based, owned by one of the big pub chains. Oh, by the way, here's a tip to all your listeners. Hide the chicken. Because <laughs> everybody's got these systems, okay? Because they think you can systemize customer care. Nando's have a metal chicken on a stick. So when you have a Nando's meal, in the middle of the table is a metal chicken on a stick. When you get to Nando's, you order your food, hide the chicken on a stick and right. cause havoc because it is to show that nobody has done the check back. Hello, sir, madam. Hello, have you eaten Nando's before? Is everything right with your meal? And you go, yes, thank you very much. Even though whether you hate it, whether it's got slugs in the lettuce, it doesn't matter. We're all stupid. We all go, yes, thank you very much. Even if you hear us in the car park going, that's crap. I won't be eating there again. Is everything right with your meal? Yes, thank you very much. And then they take the chicken away. And if they don't take the chicken away, they get a bollocking because they didn't do the check back. So you hide the chicken until you've finished your meal. Then you reproduce the chicken. And some, <laughs> <laughs> someone else is going to get a massive bollocking for not doing the check, you see, which right. is, I think, terribly funny. But I said to these chicken and chip people, because you get this great fat balloon sidle up to you, going, everything around right your meal? And you go, yes, thank you very much. And then you say, it's crap. I would say, pick the customer up by the throat, pull their nose to yours and say, listen, pal, are you telling me this is the best meal you've ever eaten in your life? <laughs> and they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not doing that. Why? Because our food's crap and we know it. We're not asking the customer that. And I said, well, that, that's an aspiration. Let's see how good we can get. But you see, NPS, the Net Promoter Score, which is so complicated, but basically if you score less than eight, you get a bollocking. It becomes the tail wag wagging the dog. 
So it's not to find out where you can improve. It's to find out where you can take this poor minimum wage idiot and give him a good kick in for scoring less than seven. So they will always engineer the staff. Again, it's the staff will engineer high scores without actually giving good service or bad. But that's not their objective. Their objective is not to get a bollock in for getting a bad score. So they never are. So it's like a doctor saying, do you feel ill? And you go, yes. And then scoring him five. So every time the doctor gets told that one of his patients feels ill, he gets a bollocking. He'll word the question in such a way that you don't tell him you're ill. This is interesting. (laughs) In traditional Chinese medicine, the doctor gets paid when you're well. When you're (laughs) sick, they have to cover the cost of your medicines. So their emphasis is on creating a healthy lifestyle sure. and prevention. And I think compensation systems have a tendency to drive the wrong behavior. In sales, you see people being measured and compensated for many of the oh. wrong things. So the emphasis on the number of dials, the sure. number of proposals out the door, the number yeah. of meetings. The problem there is that if you focus on those lag indicators, if you focus on those metrics which are selfish, rather than about serving the customer, then you're going to find yourself in a situation where the customer has choice. And in this day and age, all you have to do is a couple of keystrokes, and you found a competitor. I have two two examples of that. One is I, I bought a car not long ago, and me and the salesman hate each other on site. I didn't like him, he didn't like me. And we fought to the death over this car, right? And in the end, he said, I used a slimy little git. And I truly disliked him. And he thought I was a cocky bastard. And that was clear too. And at the end of the day, he said, look, pal, look, pal. He said, if I let you, you're talking about buying this car for cost. He said, where do you think I earn my money? I said, I don't know. He said, I get a percentage of the profit. I said, well, tough shit. I'm not buying it then. And he said, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, if I sell you this car at cost, which means my employer seriously loses out because they're going to get told off by the manufacturer as well. But what will happen is that the day after you bought this car, you will get somebody ring you up and ask whether I, how well I'd sold the car. He said, if you give me 10 out of 10 on every question, I get 250 quid. <laughs> so he said, I'll sell you the car at cost. You piss off. Give me 10 out of 10, and we're, we're, we've got a deal. And that's how it worked. So he wrote, did you like Frank, our salesman? He was lovely. What would you score him? 10 out of 10. Would you recommend it? How likely are you to 10 out of 10? You know, he got his 250 quid, and his employer lost a fortune. This used to happen a lot. A friend of mine was looking to buy a flat in Putney. And uh, it was an investment. And he looked around the flats and he asked what the asking price was. And he said, no, that's way too much. And the estate agent, sorry, the sales negotiator, (laughs) also known as Discount King, said, well, if you offer 80 grand off the, the asking price, I think they need a quick sale. Now, for him, it was a loss of 800 pounds in fee so probably about 80 quid to him. And the problem there is that there is no responsibility 
what they were doing was giving £80,000 of the vendor's money away because there was no moral obligation or there was no, I'm trying to think of the word, no decency at the whole process. And better to walk away from a bad sale than make a bad sale. Better to say no to a bad customer than create a headache for your customer service people down the road. And what I see happen far too often is that salespeople aren't salespeople. At best, they are order takers. Sure. They're really shit. They're negotiators. And I have a huge amount of respect for genuine negotiation, but it happens so rarely. Uh, What negotiation generally is defined as is giving stuff away to buy business. And you see the owner of the business, their profit margins being just chipped away because there is no focus on genuine salesmanship. So back to that question, why is it that there are so few managers out there who know how to recruit good salespeople? They wouldn't know one if it kicked them in the face. And they can't get the best out of their people either. They have no idea how to coach. Why does that keep persisting and what do leaders have to do to fix it? I don't think there's any necessarily. I think that the mists of time have completely lost the value of actually having people who intend to sell. I think even being described as sales is is almost a pejorative term. I think that companies don't see themselves as sales organizations. They whimper and whine about the internet. And I would give them only one let on that. And that is, in the old days of dodgy sales, when you were selling photocopiers and all the office equipment, which was a mystery to the customer. So the salesman who came from any of the famous photocopier firms would have had a manual of script, the typical objections, setting that aside for a moment, sir, is exactly the copier that you wanted and all that stuff. And they used to put their fingers in the right place and this, that, and the other. So you could take any idiot and teach them a perfect script and they would have a perfect sale. And it worked on the principle that the customer didn't really understand what they were buying. And I think in the modern world of the informed customer, the sales complexion has changed a bit. I think the sales techniques have got lost with that. So people are saying, well, with the internet, the customers are so well informed that sales is futile. Whereas actually what they ought to be saying is, The customers are so well-informed, so we can't pull their wool over their eyes with weird scripts and holding back information that the customer doesn't possess. But that doesn't mean that a shrewd negotiator can't take a potential customer through a pathway which will lead to them being delighted and buying a product, which is exactly what they need. I mean, it frustrates me that I, I do a lot of work with house builders, right? So a house builder is a house builder. This is your home where you live. So you build a boxy house and the building cost is ludicrous. It's like £25 a square foot or something. So it costs like 1,100 quid to build a house, which they send for half a million because the plot costs the money and all the bits of the show home and bits of the cardboard walls. I mean, a lot of them put fitted wardrobes because the noise of somebody having a poo in the (laughs) bog next to you would be so, but the 
but the wardrobe makes a sound break. So you have two cardboard walls with a few suits in it stops the sound of somebody farting. <laughs> but if you had a true sales negotiator and somebody walked in and say, why is this house £200,000 more than the one next door? You could say, because my lover, hello, come in, my darling. It's lovely and cozy in here. See these doors? You see, if you go next door, you'll see the, the doors are made of pressed paper. Now, these are actually oak doors. They're made in Somerset by hand. That means that your great-grandchildren will be swinging on that door one day, my lover. And every internal wall is made of solid brick, so you won't be able to listen to somebody having a boom. Now, this is a house you could be proud of. I admit it's not as cheap as next door, but did you ever want to live in a cheap home, sir? You know? But they don't employ people like that. So they build houses crapper and crapper and crapper because they think people are falling over themselves to live in a cardboard house. <laughs> so you work a lot with people who are wanting to become self-employed. Yeah. Now, when you set up in business for yourself, you've just bought a sales job. And I see this happen a lot where the world's greatest plumber decides they're going to set up on their own. Sure. What they think they want to do is build a plumbing business. But what they really end up building is a job for themselves and a means for the tax man to get paid, the mortgage company to get paid, and they never really build a business. Yeah. So if, Maybe they don't want to build a business. Fair play. That's fine. But a lot of them claim that they do. Yeah. And on their LinkedIn profile, they call themselves entrepreneurs, yeah. which raises a smile. Much like when people call themselves business gurus. I'm a guru. <laughs> I am a guru, though. <laughs> I was told never to refer to myself as an expert. But it's X means past and spurt is what something either taps or penises do. Yeah. No, a drip under pressure is the one I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you just bought a sales job. Yeah. But you're a good technician. Sure. What advice would you give to people who are setting out on that journey? First of all, professionalism. I tell a story in my, in my seminars that you go to see your NHS doctor with a stomach pain, you know, and he goes, oh, yes, yes, I know what that is. Uh, yeah, you need a, you're going to need an operation for that, you know. And you go, oh, can I have it on the national health? And he goes, well, yeah, if you want to wait five years for it, you can, but you might not last that long. So you go to Harley Street and parked outside this beautiful Regency building is a white Rolls Royce. And you're ushered into a, a lovely, lovely waiting room where you're given a cappuccino and there's magazines that cost £26 a copy, you know, and there's a, there's a nurse in a crisp white uniform and you're ushered into Sir Henry's office. Do sit down, old chap. Yeah, I've got this. Oh, well, there's, I looked at your ex. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. You're going to have a little operation, one I've done many, many thousands of times. and um. You know, then you'll spend probably four or five days in my clinic. And you know what? You're going to feel better than you've ever felt before. I really will set you back on your feet, this chap. So don't worry. How much is this going to cost? Oh, really? It's not expensive. I, I shouldn't think it's going to be a penny more than £50,000. What? Bloody hell. So you're in the pub that night. I've got to have this operation, 50,000. And this weird little guy sidles up to you. His glasses like the bottle of Coke bottles, you know. 
Uh, hello, I, I couldn't help uh, overhearing. I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm Cyril Spaggins, and I'm chairman of the Reading Amateur Surgery Club. <laughs> I'm a VAT inspector by trade, but I do a bit of bowel reception in my spare time. No charge. We meet above the nag's head on a Thursday. No charge. And, it, and we'll have a bit of quiche Lorraine after if you survive. <laughs> now, I always say to my audience, would you let him do it? Oh, well, bloody hell no. Why? Did you ask to see the Harley Street's documents to prove he was a doctor? No. Have you ever asked any doctor you've been to see to prove that he's a doctor? Well, no. Why not? Well, he looks like a doctor. Well, do you look like a plumber? You know? <laughs> do, do, do you? You know, it's so easy. I, well, funny, it's funny you should mention plumber. We had a, we had a self-employed plumber, and he literally had a van with a dog in it and everything else. And he said, come on, Jeff. And I... We got him in this. We got him to wear a, a felt boiler suit with a Velcro fastening and star plumbing on the pocket, you know. And he arrives in a shining white van. When he mends your dripping tap, you get a beautiful guarantee card guaranteeing that the tap won't drip for three years because they don't, right? But you're not going to throw that away because it's a guarantee. So you've got his phone number. Right. And he says to them, because if you do something good for customers, you must always tell them why you're doing it. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed my boiler suit. Not only is it felt, but we have Velcro because we found that wearing a traditional boiler suit, when we lean on your beautiful fittings, it could scratch them. So by having Velcro and felt, it makes sure that. And then he beautiful blanket in the bath with all the, you know, this is, and tell the customer thing. And he puts on special slippers with his logo on it. You know, all this cost him a grand total of about 200 quid. And he charges double that every other plumber charges. He's got twice as much work. And it's just about first step professionalism. You know, you do not employ a surgeon that you bump into in a pub, you know. And I say, you never know. Cyril Spaggins is probably a better surgeon than Sir Henry Wormit, you know. You assume he isn't. Because he comes across as a tosser. When you start your self-employed business, do you come across as a tosser? Do you work out your garage? Do you send letterhead in that's been printed on something on the motorway? You know, we all work out of our back bedrooms, but then, of course, the customers don't know that. As long as your outward appearance is that of professionalism, that you're going to show up on time. And then the next thing, do you know, people say, Jeff, where did you learn your Brilliant intelligence. Uh, uh, no, they don't say that, but I imagine they're thinking that. My <laughs> mum, my dad was a psychiatrist and he was hopeless. He, he, he was just a proper Viennese site. My mum kept us all by buying and selling businesses. I watched her. She used to, usually shops, she had a grocery shop. And people would say, oh, Mrs. Birch, can I have a pound of tomatoes? And she'd put the paper bag on the scales and she'd scoop up a handful of tomatoes out of the the box, and she'd plop them in one by one to watch the scale going up to a pound. And she always held a tomato between her little finger and her palm. And when they got to the pound, she'd say, was that, oh, that's all right, lovey? And they'd go, oh, yes, thank you for Mrs. Birch. And then she'd turn her palm to show them the extra tomato. Go, ah. And she'd go, oh, yeah. And she'd drop that one in. And I said, Christ, man, why did you always do that? She said, that's our holiday. She said the business turns over 50 grand a year. She'd say that's another 5,000 quid, that tomato. 
She said, that's our holiday every year. Just that. You know, you go to quote for the tap. By the way, I couldn't help noticing your boiler makes a funny noise when it comes on. Would you like me to do the service while I'm here? You know, painter and decorator. How much to decorate the lounge? And by the way, the hallway could do with a lick of paint. McDonald's have been doing it for years. Would you like to go large with that? Did you want a meal? Do you want to go for the meal? You know, McDonald's make millions from it. Why can't we? This is really interesting. When I first started out my sales training business, we have a program which used to be called the President's Club, but we rebranded it just before all that scandal. Mastery. Uh, <laughs> And I used to go in and think that I had to try and sell President's Club. And what I learned, it took me about five or six years, was to go in with an open mind and learn to shut the fuck up, first of all, and ask questions and listen and really pay attention to what they wanted and what was missing. My pal Chris Murray taught me a fabulous Portuguese word called saudade. And what it means is the sense of something missing. And I think we need to sell to the saudade. We need to listen for where the gap is between where they are and where they want to be, and then have them ask us to solve all of that. And since doing that, my average order value is about five times bigger, which means that I have to do probably one twentieth of the prospecting. Because if you look at the stats that are banding around at the moment, 83% of first meetings never result in a second meeting. Yeah. That means 80% of your marketing budget is flushed down the Swanee. (laughs) I have a 96% close rate when it comes to a qualified prospect. So if they have pain and I've qualified them for budget and for decision, more than nine out of 10 typically will buy. But I spend my time disqualifying ruthlessly because if it's not a fit for them or if it's not a fit for me, I want to know quickly so I can get out early. I can save them time and save me the effort or I can save myself from taking on a client who's going to ultimately be unsatisfied. Now, when I go in with an open mind and I listen to what's actually being said, but also I pay attention to what's not being said, where the gaps are then I can solve their problems. And we can routinely get our clients to get 300, 500, 800, 1200% growth simply by stopping them performing acts of idiocy. (laughs) The average salesperson spends over 80% of their time chasing people who never intended to buy. But the coup de grace to get them out of the door was to ask for a proposal or a quote. So they go back to the office and they then add that to the forecast, which you then see the manager dutifully add to forecast. And then they wonder why their pipelines look like Kim Kardashian, rather big in the bottom. And where deals slip, the forecast is inaccurate. And they spend all of their lives spending it chasing people, which is crazy. Because again, I think it comes back to management, sales managers occupy the single most precarious role in any business. Your typical route to sales management is you're an okay performer as a sales producer. Your boss gets fired. You get the tap on the shoulder and saying, Jeff, old boy, you're it. There's a story. I'm a Gloucestershire boy, right? 
So I'm driving through the countryside, a bit of the countryside I don't recognize. And there's a sign saying, try shooting. And I thought, oh, I'll have a go at this. I, I, I drove up a path. Like, Hello, sir, you, you want to try your hand at shooting? I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, well, get your gun out of the car then. I said, I haven't got a gun. Oh, well, you have never, you never shot before? No, I haven't, no. Oh, well, you better have the Remington, full choke, it can hit anything. You know, there's nothing nothing flying. It'll bring a jumbo jet this and down, really. And I'm, get your dog then. I've got a dog. Oh, you'll have to have a dog. I will lend you our dog. <laughs> he brought me this thing in a cage, his mad staring eyes looking at me through the slats. <laughs> I said, gee. I said, what's that? He's a good and he'll look after you. And they let this thing, wild, lunatic dog out. And we got to the middle of nowhere. I couldn't see anything to shoot at, but the dog's going mad. It's pointing with its paw to a tree. There's a bird. I shoot it. The dog's off, brings back the bird in its mouth. And it's pointing at another tree. I'm off again. Off it goes. And I'm such a bad shot that some of these trees, are, these birds are landing in the tops of trees. Right? And this dog would climb the trees like a monkey and come back. I couldn't stop it. In the end, I had a pile of birds bigger than me, and I couldn't stop. So it, the dog just keeps fetching these birds until I ended up with a pile of birds. I couldn't stop this dog. So I, I come back to the farm, and I had to drag the dog off. Them. I said, I couldn't stop this dog. Oh, no, you won't. You can't stop him working. I said, what's his name? He said, salesman. We call him salesman because he's like the bloke that comes here to sell us the diesel. He won't stop. I said, I said, to Charlie, that dog's like that salesman. He won't stop. We called him salesman. It's all fantastic. So I came back the next year. Well, sir, it's you again, is it? Oh, yeah, I'll try to shoot him. Can I borrow the gun? Yeah, you can have the Beretta again. Oh, good. Can I have the dog? Which dog is that, sir? Salesman. Oh, no, sir, you can't have him. Why not? Something horrible happened to him. What? <laughs> what, what happened to him? He's not dead. Oh, no, sir, it's worse than dead. Worse than dead? What, what's worse than dead? We changed his name, sir. He changed his name worse than dead. What have you called him? We called him manager. <laughs> and he just sits on his ass and barks now. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, you're absolutely right. People give the name manager to somebody who's a great salesman. He's not a great manager. <laughs> He's just a great salesman. So you've taken away somebody who was a great salesman and turned him into something that he can't do. And he just sits on his ass and barks. Well, typically what happens is they do what was done to them. And so the manager spends their time stuck behind a spreadsheet, staring at the numbers, praying aggressively that they will change. Yeah. And they don't. And managers then have to go out at the end of the quarter or the sales period to rescue the number. And they get to put their shiny white armor on, get on the white horse and look like a hero. And that focuses them back on production. So where I see a huge mistake happening, and if you are setting up in business and you hire a salesperson and eventually you promote them to become a player manager, that almost never works as well because their natural inclination will be to focus on their production number and they'll leave the management to the, on the back burner and that's what gets sacrificed. So you end up hiring a bunch of people who you're paying who don't produce and so you get this revolving door in sales, which again is another act of idiocy. 
can I run something by you? And that is an awful lot of sales managers are arseholes as well. Yeah. I mean, my experience is that they have these crawly, bum-lit, smart-ass, blokey, let's all go and play golf together, elite top three salesmen who don't ever share leads with anyone. They have somebody at the bottom they mock. You know, here's Barry. Here's old Barry. How many did you sell today, Barry? Piss all, I should imagine. Ho, ho, ho. Till Barry gets demoralized and leaves. There's always a little group of Barrys at the bottom that bring nothing back. There's a group of smart-ass people that reek of Aramis at the top who <laughs> get all the good leads and easy jobs. And they're all like a little smart-ass bunch who grew up together in the company. You know, and, and again, it's very hard to get a thing where you get this unity of purpose from a sales team who actually work together. That's another thing you find, that the sales engineers hate the set. So the sales engineers never give referrals back. Or the engineers, not the sales engineers, the engineers never come back and say, do you know what? I've just serviced of XP5675. Do you know they've had that thing for 25 years and it's wearing out? There's none of that going on. And I say there's this little fragrant group of smart asses at the top. And if I own that company, the owners, the management don't understand their own sales force. So they don't know what a bunch of mutinous tossers they've got in the sales department. You know, that's the other thing. You know yourself, you're a sales trainer. How many times have you been confronted with Mr. Pinstripe Suit, reeking of Aramis, sitting in the front, school bully, bunch of laughing mates where he tries to take the piss out of your training because he doesn't want to be there? You know, you should go straight back and go to his boss and say, first step, fire your top three salesmen. They're mutinous dogs. You're not going to find me fighting you on that. I think <laughs> culturally, it begins with the leadership. You know, speed of the leader determines speed of the group. And often sales is at odds with other departments. I think there is lack of clarity and ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. And it also leads to disgruntled employees, which invariably leads to disgruntled customers. And so I think there's a whole raft of issues that need to be addressed. The first one is that there needs to be clarity at the top. Whoever is leading the business, whoever is leading the business needs to be able to express a clear vision of what they're trying to achieve. And they should recruit for that. It should be part of the recruitment process, part of the onboarding process, and it should be something that they live. And this comes back to values, which, again, I think have been largely lost. I'm reading a couple of books at the moment, Moneyland and Dark Money, both of which are about how a, a handful of exceptionally wealthy people, the Koch brothers and the DeVosses, and various others, has subverted the political landscape. And they're using their money and basically loopholes in the campaign political funding process to be able to throw unlimited cash to further their own personal agendas. And the net result of that has been that they've been able to destroy or create doubt and create gridlock when it comes to climate change, when it comes to employment rights, when it comes to pollution, 
and when it comes to the political fundraising. So in the States, you see people voting against affordable health care when they desperately need affordable health care. And what fascinates me is that I think people overcomplicate the whole process. And this is the genius of the far right, which is they've been able to win elections on get Brexit done, make America great again. And there is that lack, there is clarity with their message. Everybody understands it. It's very simple. But businesses, I think, overcomplicate things because what they want to be is the best in many things. They have multiple priorities. Up until the 1830s, the word priority was only available in the singular form. Then the Industrial Revolution came along and they decided they needed multiple priorities. It comes from the Latin a priori, which means the one. And so often people get distracted because they're not working towards that common purpose. The net result of that is that their workforce is confused. They end up competing with themselves. Their departments are at odds with one another. Sales isn't valued. And it is the engine, the lifeblood of every business. But it's kind of the default setting for when you're a B or C student and you couldn't get a proper job and become an accountant, a lawyer, or a doctor. So I'm curious, in terms of your message out to sales forces, what are you teaching sales forces? I don't kind of work at your elevated level. I mean, my speciality is uh, the low-hanging fruit. I have a, a typical client, I call him the talking bottom. So basically, you have this wonderful oily salesman arrive at your premises and says, oh, stand a little closer to it, sir. It makes you look taller. Closes the sale. You have this device which erupts in a sheet of flame the next day. What arrives is not the salesman. What arrives is the talking bottom, which is this bloke with a dog turd stuck to one shoe and a box of spanners. (laughs) And his cheery greeting to you is, who sold you this? (laughs) And you go, well, Brian, Brian's a twat. And then he vanishes inside, and then all that talks to you is his bottom. And his bottom says things like, they're all made in Korea, these, they're crap. The last person I went, the last company I went to, they were all burned to death when one of these caught fire, you know. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I said that they could be ambassadors or assassins. And again, I have this, I have worked in sales, and, and, and I, I worked in sales in the days when the work, the shop floor were all fully unionized. And if I promised the customer too much, they'd all go out on strike. They literally would. And I I was seen as a maverick lunatic that I sometimes got the workshop foreman in the car with me and took him to meet a client. Because they said, well, no, 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 no. You must never let the customer see the idiots that make these things. (laughs) I have this thing because i'm an old stinky hippie really i'm an old biker hippie which is this holistic thing which is where the business becomes an entrepreneurial culture where every single person in it is actually there to promote the company who again print industry i was working with the print industry and a client who was having some catalogs made walked through the back door. He was the biggest insurance company in the world. The sales department had done such a good job. The entire company report, a million copies printed, 
The guy walked in the back door, spoke to the bloke on the guillotine. What are you making? All these things, they're crap. You see what they've done? They've printed the covers first, then they printed the insides at the end of the run. So there's a cutout in the front. So when it's shut together, the frigging colors don't match. It's the shittest job we've ever done. You know, whoa, hold on. <laughs> it's, just, it's just this business of having a, a company that moves forward together. And a company that has punishment as its basic motivational driver, anybody caught whatever, who have these surveys where things are measured, where you bring bad news that a customer's not happy, then you get fired. Not listened to, you get fired. So when you go back and say, look, I've got a customer here, and he's not, everything will right with your meal. And it's like this, this, and this. Okay, let's put this right. Why have we got so many people complaining about the chips? Because we've done this, we've done that, you know? And you talk about management. Management is about taking, again, it's the low-hanging fruit. If you take one of your typical teams where you have these high-performing salespeople, they're all trundling along doing well. There'll be, out of a sales force of 100, there'll be 10 that are a bit crap. Those 10 should either be fired on the spot, which is another British thing. We tend to make, keep employees who are crap so we can torment them. Well, Terry, you're going to be crap again this week. Instead of saying, Terry, sit down. You're a lovely guy. We'll love having you. But, you know, Terry, you're going to be so much happy working somewhere else, you know. Or you take these people who underperform. The manager, this manager, this mysterious manager, the one that we've never found, takes those people under his wing, he one-to-ones with them, and where their performance can go from 10% to 90%, they've increased by 800%. His top performers are already performing, and yet it's all kind of upside down. Because you're a great salesman, the reward is you're going to go on this great sales training program in Tenerife. Because, Brian, you're crap, we're not going to train you because you're not worth training. You think, well, I'm on a minute. You know, it's the one who's crap that needs the training. Or am I wrong? I think that you should definitely play favorites and you should coach your best people because 30% improvement out of them is better than 30% out of Terry. That said... Terry, um, you can get 100% improvement, can't you? Well, 900% would get you there. Uh, most management problems start in recruitment. If you'd recruited the right people in the first place, and then you spend your time getting the best out of them, then miraculously people perform. But the typical way most people hire is they hire reactively and they compromise on recruitment. Then if they do hire a decent person, there's no one to spend any decent time with them. So they spend the next six weeks stuck with all of your B and C players and you turn an A player into a C player in, inside a couple of months yeah. because they pick up on the culture. So, look, we're coming to the top of the hour, and I'd like to ask you three questions. What's it really catching your attention in terms of stuff that you're reading, listening to, or watching? So I've been rooting through all my dad's papers and, and found uh, – I've read many times, but I've read again Eric Byrne. He was my hero. And he wrote a book called Games People Play. But his other book is, What Do You Say After You Say Hello? And he talks about scripts. He talks about scripts. And he, he says that we have a script that's 
hardwired into us before we're three, before we have language that will determine whether we have a winner script or a loser script, and he can predict how people are going to die, literally the, how their death is going to take place. I can't stress enough how powerful TA is, so transaction analysis. Yeah. Higher sales methodology is built on TA. So I'm delighted that you picked Eric Byrne. I mean, he's the, he's the father of transactional analysis, you know. And, and, and again, he, my father and he, in their analysis, used to use fairy stories. They, if you somebody find out what fairy story they like the best, you can tell them their whole personality because the voices. But, but I, mine is jokes. I mean, you, you've probably heard me trying to crack a few feeble jokes. But I, I find that jokes uh, are, have that same, because they're not real, they have that same kind of motivation of our inner soul. My favorite one is that this, this, this bloke arrives in a town, and it's one of my guiding ones. And again, excuse my language, but there's this guy, and there's this huge crowd of people running towards him, hundreds and hundreds of people running towards him, running towards him. They run past him, and there's a little fat guy puffing along behind. He goes, stop, stop, what's going on? <gasps> oh, uh, is that a tiger has escaped from the circus. And the bloke goes, where? And he says, do you think we're fucking chasing it? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but, so, so anyway, Eric, Eric Byrne, Eric Byrne and this thing. And I, I'm trying to dig into my own script, even at my fossilized age, to see if I can reprogram so I can choose my own destination without one being forced on me. So that's what I'm reading. Next time we speak, let's spend it around TA because it's a subject very close to my heart. Okay, you've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Jeff, age 23. What advice would you give him to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage? Uh, don't believe my own bollocks, I think is probably the, the thing. You know, Some of my ideas that seemed a great idea at the time weren't so great. But all in all, having a wildly misspent use and genuinely an official card-carrying hooligan my wife looked at me the other day and shocked me by saying, do you know what? She said, despite your depression, your misery, your bad behavior, you're very comfortable in your own skin. <laughs> and, I, and I suppose I'd have to say I wouldn't change anything, really. Fair enough. Okay. So let me ask you the final question. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Uh, to try and uh, – dis the, the posh word is disintermediation. And that is, in other words, I have been a very lazy boy. I have been very successful at what I do, and I have allowed intermediaries, middlemen, to provide me with all my work and all my contracts and all my everything. And then I realized that if one day they wake up and think that there's a funnier, better, more profitable speaker to promote, I'm toast. My headache at the moment is to, before I become toast, is to have a direct relationship with my clients. And what's stopping you from doing that today? I am doing it. I'm trying to work social media, which is terrifying. I'm speaking on very, very select podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and mine. Oh, I was thinking of yours. I mean, this is exactly... You are one of the special selected people to help promote the Jeff Birch brand. I mean, a great job you're doing about it. Thank you. One of the things that I find, because I'm intrinsically lazy, 
And I'm proud of that. I think the best salespeople are intelligently lazy and they find ways of using leverage. And social media has worked really well for me. It, it takes a while. But what I've found is that if I produce content with an individual prospect in mind and I write to that and I write a story, a narrative, which is typically a conversation between me and the prospect, the prospect and one of their customers. And I use it to frame a problem that they are facing today. And in doing that, I can demonstrate, first of all, an understanding of the issue. Secondly, I can illustrate some technique and tactics. But more importantly, what I can do is I can use that narrative to flip the conversation so that it moves from the problem they bring you, which is never the real problem, to get to the real problem. And there's a skill to that, which I've developed over time, but I'm finding it really effective. And the result of that is not the volume of likes and shares and comments that other people on social media get, but it's a steady stream of inbound inquiries from people who say, I read your piece, it was like you're a fly on the wall. Yeah. It happened we're, to me last we're week. We're just starting to see a glimmer of that. You know, I mean, I, I would have probably said I was one of the busiest speakers in, in, in the world, probably. And again, we rested on our laurels with that, not realizing that speakers are hired out like cars, that they fit in a price band. Jeff Birch, Jeff Birch is available. No, he isn't, but we've got two or three others that are funny like he is or whatever it is. So I suddenly found that I was being, if I was very busy and couldn't do a job, the client wasn't saying, well, well, let's wait till we can have Jeff. They were just interchanging with uh, somebody they thought was similar to Jeff. And that, that kind of spooked us a bit. And I'm seeing social media start, starting to work for me, but only starting. To, I mean, again, it, it's a mysterious thing. It's, 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 you do lots and lots and lots and lots of work and then stuff suddenly comes out of the blue and you think, well, that's weird. You know, is that a coincidence? And then they go, oh, no, I, I read a piece that you put up, put up in LinkedIn 18 months ago. And you think you've been sitting on that for 18 months thinking about it, you know? Often the timing is wrong. But if you write to a specific prospect and you've identified, you've done your research, then very often, if you tag them or get someone else to tag them, then it will resonate. And then it's very timely. But I'm getting about five to 12 really decent inbound inquiries each month. I'm probably getting four times that a week, but they're not ideal. They're outside of my territory, or they're not the kind of business that I want to take on. But the other thing is, when you're writing your content, don't stop at the one. Remember that they're going through a journey. And sometimes you have to uh, set out more than one baited hook. So if you've got particular prospects in mind, focus on that prospect, write for them, and write to enter the conversations that they are already having. I'm not sure what they're I mean, that's the thing. We're pretty crap at uh, identifying. I mean, I know the type. I mean, I know the type of prospect, and that is our markets are different. I, I, I do do sales training, but it, I would prefer, if I could choose, would be to do 
customer handling for non-customers people. So it is, you know, the truck drive. I've got a story I called Shed.com, which is uh, the online shed company. Online shed company. All you have to do is select your select your timber thing, and, and our shed will be delivered to your home. If you have trouble assembling your shed, get in touch with our online online team who will talk you through. And I say the shed is delivered to your house on the lorry, you know. And it says on the shed.com, trouble assembling your shed? Go on to shedbuild.com. Our friendly, helpful guide will talk you through. And I say to the audience, who would you ask how to build the shed? Oh, the driver. Yeah, of course you do. Excuse me, are these sheds easy to build? No, they're, they're absolute crap. They're right bastards. You see all that lot on the lorry? They're not being delivered. They're all being sent back. And that one there with sticky stuff on it fell on a kitty and killed him. You know, and... <laughs> And, and, and I kind of say, even though you have online, even you have an online presence, you cannot herd customers into behaving themselves. Your customers will always find a human being, and they will interrogate that human being about their purchase. And if your human being doesn't give the right answers, it destroys your company. That's my potential audience. When I have a room full of the people who take the money out of parking machines or a room full of service engineers or a, a room full of accountants, you know, the, who are threatening to pulp the client's fingers for an underpayment of 54p while the salesmen are spending a budget of 2 million trying to win the same client's business. You know, <laughs> you, know that's a, you train the salespeople, I'll train the accounts department. So, Jeff, how can people get hold of you? Well, they can just Google me. They can find me through LinkedIn. They can, I mean, I'm here. Just remember to spell it B-U-R-C-H, not B-I-R-C-H. Jeff Birch with a G. And um, I, I love to talk to people, as you can see. So okay. I, I'm, I'm always happy to have a, have a chat. Jeff, thank you so much. It's been highly entertaining, very illuminating. It's um, a pleasure. Excellent. I'd love to have you back. And this time, I'd love to talk about transaction analysis. Yeah, and my inner voices. It's the voices that made me do it. Oh, absolutely. That scripting is really powerful. So it's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please like, comment, and share. And if you feel that you'd be a good guest or you know someone who'd be a good guest, please get in touch. I'm always looking for interesting guests. And we don't have to agree. We can fight. You can have the diametrically opposed opinion to me clearly you'll be wrong but <laughs> it's an opportunity uh, to have a very impassioned debate as marcus kauke signing off happy selling <laughs>